90s basketball was a lot of fun playing against these dudes. They absolutely fought it every night. Five, four, three, two, one. Hill puts it on the floor. And stops anybody down. He brought the whole goal down. Matumbo embraces the ball in the unlikely upset. They're on their feet. A new NBA assist king, John Stockton. The crowd going crazy. To Michael, three, two, Michael, firing! Happy holidays. What is going on, everybody? My name is Brian Swain, and this is the 90s Basketball Show. I hope you're enjoying the festive season. We're back after a week off and have a fantastic interview lined up for the last show here of 2020. Now, many of you will know my guest, Tom Mannick, as host of The Sport Market, which you can catch every week on the TSN Radio Network. He's recognized as the leading voice when it comes to sport business in Canada. What you might not know is that long before he was a radio host, Tom was instrumental in the launch of both the Toronto Raptors and the Vancouver Grizzlies. He was the director of communications for Toronto's NBA team before it even had a name. And then he moved west to Vancouver where he was in a similar capacity as VP of communications and public relations for the team that would come to be known as the Grizzlies. I caught up with him recently, and he shared lots of great stories and insight. I started off my conversation with Tom, asking him how it was that he came to work with Canada's NBA teams. I was, uh, um, you know, doing very well and very happy at Tennis Canada. I was basically entering my 10th year as the first uh, full-time communications executive with the national governing body responsible for tennis, including uh, the Rogers Cup events in Montreal and Toronto, uh, what are now the Rogers Cup events in Montreal and Toronto. Uh, and I was basically headhunted by uh, John Bitto, the co-majority owner uh, of the uh, of of the Toronto Raptors, uh, uh, even before they were named that, and uh, you know it was interesting because I could have easily stayed and enjoyed, and I loved my 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 work at Tennis Canada. I loved the growth of Canadian tennis, but John made a, a pretty compelling offer as to how it would be a, a once in a lifetime opportunity to help launch an NBA franchise. And so basically I uh, accepted the invitation, became the team's first executive. Um, and then, you know, it was quite an eventful first year pre-operating and then made the decision to um, make the move to the Vancouver Grizzlies, like literally crossing the court um, uh, to become vice president communications and public relations uh, for the Grizzlies, but not without having a lot of amazing memories from that first year where we established the Raptors name, uh, the Raptors brand, um, our commitment to the community, uh, and certainly uh, give full credit to the Toronto market and, and ultimately to Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment for what they've done uh, with the Raptors. Uh, certainly, uh, it doesn't get any better than, than the Larry OB uh, trophy, and the Raptors have that. And um, I'm sure that there's some uh, fans on the West Coast that hope that a second coming of the NBA to Vancouver someday uh, might deliver a similar uh, Larry OB NBA championship uh, uh, for uh, for the Vancouver market and for Western Canadians. I know there's a lot of hope out here in Western Canada that we will again see an NBA basketball team back here and we'll touch on that in a little bit. 
Before we start talking Grizzlies, then, though, I think this will be great because you were there at the beginning when the Raptors came up with their name, their branding. I imagine you were there for the logo as well. Can you share a little bit of insight, Tom, about what it was that led to the team getting what was at that time, and I would say still is, one of the most unique names in professional sports? Yeah, I mean, my my pleasure. I mean, it was, you know, certainly one of the career highlights, uh, you know, and I've been lucky to have a lot of those in terms of my various roles over the years. Uh, but uh, give credit to John Bitov when he brought me on board, he basically empowered me to uh, run the, uh, the naming campaign. Obviously, uh, he took a real strong vested interest in it. Um, and uh, it was a heck of a lot of fun because it was so out of the box. Uh, we, at that time, the, the Raptors had been awarded, but the Grizzlies hadn't been awarded yet. Um, and so we were making plans to do a, you know, major national campaign, uh, a name the team contest at Cineplex Odeon theaters a, a, across the country. Um, and John basically said, Hey, look, let's make this happen. And, and, and we did. And I basically visited nine of 10 provinces. The only province we didn't go to by the time the name of the team contest began uh, was was British Columbia simply because of the um, uh, you know the arrival of the Grizzlies in uh, in the April of 1994 and so then it was going to be two Canadian teams but we were I mean and, and again give give John Bitov as the owner credit he really had a national vision for the franchise now he basically started to toy around with a number of dinosaur names uh, that was back in the day of Jurassic Park. Uh, and he was always predisposed to them because he could just see in his seven and eight year old uh, uh, son's eyes, the gleam whenever Jurassic Park was on. And, and he, he noticed that all of his kids friends were crazy about dinosaurs. So there's no question he was predisposed to the name before we um, really went too far with uh, with NBA properties and with the name, the team contest. Um, but um, he also wanted to do it right. He wanted to be um, uh, validated. He wanted to make sure that it made market sense. And basically that's what happened. Um, now, the two, the two top dinosaur names were Raptors and T-Rex. Uh, you would have had sort of Toronto Rex kind of thing. Um, and of course, both those two dinosaurs, they're the two starring roles in the Jurassic Park movie from back in the day. Uh, and and the, the, the reason why both John and I got more and more convinced that raptors was the way to go, two things. One was raptors are pack animals. T-Rexes, Tyrannosaurus rexes are, are basically solitary hunters. And we just thought that, hey, we're a basketball team. The raptors naming makes a lot of sense. And, and I got to tell you, Brian, had so much fun working on uh, my first Rice Krispies box. And it was with Snap, Crackle, Pop, uh, uh, wearing Raptors gear, uh, a big Raptors logo on the front of it. I still have it, uh, you know, to this day uh, framed. It was a lot of fun. And that was the attitude that we built around the Raptors, uh, you know, back in the day from the launch. But the other reason why John and I kept on saying that, hey, Raptors is going to be hard to beat here is the presence of T-O-R in the name. And we thought that it could be some, some playing with some people who weren't getting it that, hey, look, this is also a way to promote Toronto in the name, uh, you know, even if it was a, a, an acronym. 
uh, essentially what wound up happening is that in the name of the team contest, uh, Raptors got 19% of the vote. Um, uh, and I know that that doesn't sound a lot, but none of the others got more than 16 or 17%. And the other leading candidates were Bobcats, uh, Grizzlies, and uh, Dragons, uh, believe it or not. And, you know, guys like you will know that, hey, there's something really familiar about those names. Yes, those were the names that we basically storybooked with NBA properties in, in Secaucus, New Jersey. What an amazing creative team led by Tom O'Grady, um, who was with the NBA for years and is now uh, his, 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 his own boutique agency. And he was brilliant to work with and great to work with. So we used Raptors for Toronto. But then the other names that were all developed with, you know, storyboards and, and, and conceptual designs, uh, they, two of them made it into the NBA, obviously Grizzlies and uh, the Bobcats for a short time in, in, in Charlotte before they regained the, um, uh, the, Hornets, uh, the Hornets nickname. And then the third leading uh, candidate or third leading name coming out of the Raptors name, the team contest back in 1994, uh, was the the dragons and uh, I personally think dragons would have been a great name for Vancouver's uh, franchise and maybe if the NBA ever comes back to Vancouver it would it would be a pretty cool Pacific Gateway uh, uh, kind of name for that team but uh, believe it or not the New Jersey Nets long before they became the Brooklyn Nets um, they wind up they, they wound up uh, 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 testing out and they were going to rename themselves the New Jersey Dragons, but there wasn't a lot of great response in New Jersey. And then they wound up shelving it. And of course, we all know that the, the New Jersey Nets are now the Brooklyn Nets. And basically, we got the, the classic black and white B uh, on the ball as their logo. So that's a little bit of, you know, the detail of the behind the scenes of the naming of the Toronto Raptors. But it was sort of cool for me to go from one of the names that we were playing with to become an executive with the Vancouver Grizzlies and then to see the Bobcats um, get into the league and then the Swamp Dragons almost get into the league. It, it, it sort of was co coming full circle. So the Raptors brand and nickname was introduced first before the Grizzlies. Is it just coincidence that the third place nickname in the Raptors voting, the Grizzlies, has ended up being in Vancouver? Or did it take root there? And that's how it eventually became the Grizzlies nickname. Uh, I really believe that it, it took root there. I mean, obviously, it needed to play well in the, in the Vancouver market. It needed to play well in British Columbia. But um, I, even, I even know that, you know, I can tell you that Tom O'Grady and I had a couple of conversations about the fact that, um, hey, you've got two really good Vancouver opportunities here. And one was Grizzlies, the other one was Dragons. And they did some testing, um, you know, and I hadn't made the move yet from the Raptors to what were, what were to be the Grizzlies. Uh, but I do know that they work closely with NBA properties and it just became such a natural that, um, and, and even more natural than Toronto Grizzlies. I mean, there's no Grizzlies in downtown Vancouver, as you know, uh, but there's also no Grizzlies in downtown Toronto. But um, yeah, it, it, there's no question the seeds were planted there with the way the Grizzlies name and the brand tested with the kids. And that's what the NBA does. The NBA doesn't do adult focus groups. The NBA does 
teens. They basically break them up into 12 to 14s and 14s to 16. Sometimes they go as old as 18 years. And that's where they get a lot of their, their, their marketing info, their marketing uh, uh, strategies, their marketing uh, directions. And the, the thinking is really simple, Brian. They, they make the point that, hey, if you're cool with the kids, you'll be cool with kids of all ages. And a lot of NBA fans, even baby boomers and, and, and generation Xers are basically, they're pretty, you know, let's say hip, you know, they like to think of themselves as hip. And that's why the NBA does so much work with young fans. And, and listen, Grizzlies tested very well. Uh, I don't think they could have, um, you know, gone wrong. I do think that Dragons, again, if there's another second coming of the NBA in Vancouver, I think Dragons would be a very cool um, uh, name uh, for Vancouver as a Pacific Gateway city with the number of uh, Chinese Canadian uh, and first generation Chinese fans that uh, know about the NBA from Yao Ming and Kobe Bryant in, uh, in, 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 in China. You know, what's really interesting, Tom, is I'm listening to what when is the process of coming up with these names and, and you just touched on it there is the emphasis of how well it was being received by kids. And I imagine there were probably some adults then when these names came out at the time who rolled their eyes. But as you say, this is not who they were targeting. And there's an entire generation now that have been raised on the Raptors. And, you know, those kids who were 5, 10, 15 years old back then are, are now, you know, 35, 40 years old. They have kids of their own. And the Raptors have become a fixture within that generation and, and as such basically become a fixture in Canadian culture, Canadian sport culture. Was that sort of the long term vision? Were you playing the long game? Was that sort of factor into your thinking when you were developing these brands? There's, there's no question that we were of the view that Raptors would become a lot cooler and would be a lot more acceptable long play than short play. We knew that eyes would roll, as you, as you just said, uh, with such an out-of-the-box name. Um, you know, but quite frankly, uh, I give a lot of credit to the new ownership of the Seattle Kraken of the National Hockey League because Kraken in the year 2020 is what Raptors was Back in 1994 and 1995, I really believe there's a lot of parallels. And, and trust me, watch for the Kraken to have a lot of fun with the way they do their game presentation, um, the way they do their, you know, their storytelling for the, for the new Kraken brand, and uh, the way they make money you know, with, uh, with hockey jerseys that I think will be uh, you know, pretty close to, if not you know, as successful, maybe even more successful than the, the Vegas Golden Knights of the National Hockey League. But back on to the, um, uh, the NBA, yes, it, it was very much of a long play. We did think that the kids um, who, got, who fell in love with the Raptors name and the, the, the dinosaur mark uh, back in the day, that they would grow with the franchise and they would feel ownership of the franchise. And um, quite frankly, that's exactly what's happened. And it's like so many names in, in professional sport. And we were also mindful of this. Uh, you know, when the Toronto Blue Jays were first named, you know, a lot of people said, what? Like, what a lame name for a Major League Baseball franchise. But that was really corporate driven, you know, with uh, Labatt and Labatt Blue. And, and it was a nice way to uh, do a few things at the, at the same time. But even... All those critics who were critical of the Toronto Blue Jays naming, uh, they basically uh, 
can't imagine the Blue Jays being called anything but Toronto Blue Jays. And I think it's the same thing uh, with the Raptors uh, after all these years. So as you got rolling and pounding the pavement there in Vancouver, Tom, obviously the brand was registering. How did you find the reception was to the sport of basketball, the NBA, the league? Well, you know what? I, I, I think there was excitement and I think there was excitement in both Toronto and Vancouver. Um, but, you know, they're two very different markets. Uh, in my just over a year with the Raptors pre-operating, all I need to do was sneeze NBA and everybody got the cold. Uh, you know, that's not a great analogy to use in the middle of a global, global pandemic. But, you know, my, my, my point is that all I had to do was say NBA and the media was all over it. And in Vancouver, there was a little bit more of a polarized, jaded view of like, okay, show us the substance. Um, we're not going to buy into the hype. And, and Vancouver was a, a more interesting market that way. Um, you know, maybe not as Americanized as Toronto. Uh, there's a, a number of theories about that, you know, on the other side of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, but it took a lot more work to build up NBA excitement in Vancouver than it did in Toronto. I also think part of that is demographics. Uh, we know that uh, Toronto is a very uh, diverse um, uh, and largest city in the country. It's got a, you know, a not only big Asian population and, and South Asian population, but a, a very significant um, uh, Black population. And that wasn't necessarily the same in, in Vancouver. I think Vancouver's a lot more diverse now than it was and a lot more international now than it was back in the day. And and, and, and so I, I would say hardcore basketball fans, there was definite excitement. Uh, even just, you know, casual sports fans, there was uh, some good excitement about this new NBA uh, coming to Canada. Uh, and, you know, the results in terms of season ticketing, you know, reveal themselves. Uh, a lot of people put a lot of money down in Toronto, even though the first few seasons were going to be played at Skydome, which is now Rogers Centre. And then um, in Vancouver, the brand new General Motors place that's now Rogers Arena, uh, you know, people were sort of curious as to who would be playing alongside the, the Canucks. And so I think there was a lot of excitement and the excitement allowed the franchise, uh, both of them, to make mistakes. I mean, arguably on the court, the Grizzlies probably made more mistakes than, than, than the Raptors did. Uh, more missed opportunities uh, in Vancouver than in Toronto. Uh, but there was a solid honeymoon period in both markets. Uh, imagine, you know, uh, any league or any team in any league that lost as much as the Grizzlies did those first, you know, five or six seasons, but there was still strong support. And there really was strong support until, um, you know, uh, uh, Michael Heisley, uh, made the move to to move the franchise to uh, to Memphis. Um, you know the the late Michael Heisley. Uh, he was a bit of a, uh, a a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, Bill Laurie had originally made a bid to buy the team, wound up being rejected by the NBA. But he was very clear, saying, "Hey, I'm going to move this franchise," and he was looking at St. Louis uh, to do that. Uh, whereas Michael Heisley 
guys I know who were talked to about being executives for him, they were pretty clear that, uh, you know, they, they were asked not to plan for a long time in Vancouver. And that's a real shame because if the Grizzlies, uh, even by not, even not drafting Steve Nash, if the Grizzlies had just had another couple of years to survive those 65 cent dollar years uh, and, you know, get closer and closer to breaking even with the 500 season, uh, I really believe the, uh, the franchise would, would still be here. But once it was ripped out of the womb of Orchid Bay Sports and Entertainment and became a tenant, that was a real tough financial proposition. And the excitement faded pretty quickly. When I've said it a lot of times on the sport market on TSN 1260 and on the TSN radio network, the worst trade in NBA history, Vancouver for Memphis. I know there'd be a lot of listeners that would certainly share that sentiment and agree with you on that. And I do want to touch on the departure of the Grizzlies here. Of course, they lasted six seasons. You talked about how often or how much the team lost over the years, and it's really unbelievable. They only had a winning streak of more than three games once. Um, They were never more than three games over 500 in their entire run. And of course, they started 2-0. So, I mean, you're right. It's just unprecedented. We've really haven't seen it with any other sport where a market had to endure so much defeat over those early years as they did with the Grizzlies. But there were some good times in there too. And I'd like to get Tom, maybe you to share a couple of your, your happiest memories, your fondest memories of being involved there with the Grizzlies in the early going. Well, you know, um, uh, obviously the launch of the, the Grizzlies unis um, where we had uh, Gabriel Reese, uh, the Nike sponsored beach volleyball player, a uh, model, uh, the, the Grizzlies uniforms. We were actually in conversations with uh, Tyra Banks people and uh, Naomi Campbell, uh, actually. Uh, but we wound up uh, deciding we'd go with sort of the more athletic model uh, uh, and, and Gabrielle Reese was it. And one of my favorite moments in the entire history of the Grizzlies was to see um, uh, six foot uh, whatever uh, Gabrielle Reese was um, alongside Arthur Griffiths, who, you know, is sort of in the Tom Cruise cat- category in terms of height. And it was such a funny contrast, but Arthur was a real sport wearing his, you know, decked out sunglasses during that, uh, that uh, catwalk uh, debut of the, the Grizzlies uh, uh, jerseys that we staged at the Vancouver uh, Convention Center uh, back in the day. That's certainly on my personal podium uh, of um, uh, favorite moments. Another one you already touched upon, uh, the first road game and the first home game on that weekend, Friday in Portland, Sunday against against Minnesota. And uh, we won both of them. And uh, it was a little bit giddy. And I remember the energy at what was then General Motors Place when, um, uh, the, Grizzlies, sorry, when the Grizzlies won in overtime against the Timberwolves uh, Chris King, it was, uh, you know, such an amazing moment. And to see the 18,000, 19,000 fans stand in unison um, with that amazing overtime victory, it's almost like, you know, the world is your oyster grizzlies. And then I made the mistake at a press conference on Tuesday announcing one of our community programs to, to joke that we're on a pace to go 82-0. and 0. <laughs> and, and uh, of course, uh, that jinxed the franchise and they didn't get another W for about a month. Uh, and I think they finished the season with a couple of wins, but a lot of L's, a lot of losses uh, along the way. 
Uh, I think the, 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 the third uh, memory that, that I have about the Grizzlies is just the way the, the young fans especially responded to Grizz, Super Grizz. We sort of had a regular Grizz and then the second half he'd come out as Super Grizz with superhero uh, powers. He was our mascot. Um, uh, and in, in my opinion, uh, and his name, you know, I know he wouldn't mind me mentioning it now, Trevor Jones uh, was that mascot. He was working with me in Toronto. We were thinking of him as the original Raptor. He wound up being Grizz slash Super Grizz. And he was, in my opinion, right up there with the gorilla uh, among the best mascots in the NBA in the mid-1990s. And to see the way the kids responded to the mascot, the, the, the dance team, the music, uh, it was something special. And that's why a lot of people feel that at some point, the NBA will come back to uh, Vancouver um, so that fans can give it another kick at the can. And just in touching on when the Grizzlies left after the 2000-2001 season, so their sixth season, what would have had to have gone differently for the Grizzlies to still be there today? Well, I think there's two immediate things that really stand out to me as pivotal points in Grizzlies history. Uh, One is the non-drafting of Steve Nash. Uh, You know, even for those of us who would never have foreseen or imagined that he'd be, you know, even if he was one one hundredth the player that he wound up becoming as a two-time back-to-back NBA MVP, Steve Nash would have given the franchise so much more of an extended honeymoon period as a Canadian, and it would have connected with the community even more. Um, And it would have made a lot of people forget about some of the American players who didn't feel comfortable not being able to uh, you know, watch ESPN um, and and some of the ridiculous comments made about like you know uh, grocery stores and 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 nightlife in Vancouver and so on and so forth. Uh, Steve Nash would have outshone all of that if there had been a way to get him. And I and I can tell you, I, I it was Todd Lewicki, who's now the CEO of the Seattle Crack, and myself and others on the marketing and the communications and PR side, we were all unified with, okay, look, we know that Sharif Abdul-Rahim has got to be the number one, like the pick, the top Grizzlies pick, uh, I believe at number three overall, if I'm not mistaken, that that year. We get that. We get that you, you're going to go with Sharif, but uh, do everything you can, Stu, to get Steve Nash with the, with the second uh, uh, pick in the first round. And even when... Um, uh, the Phoenix Suns uh, drafted uh, Steve Nash a couple of spots ahead of the Grizzlies. There was still an opportunity to acquire him on a same day trade. Um, and then I believe another opportunity a couple of days later, but it never happened. And I think that that is one of the reasons why the Grizzlies didn't meet their full potential. Uh, again, even a, a player 1-100 the caliber of, of, of Steve Nash, the way he wound up being, would have done wonders for the market. I think the other thing that would have changed the course of history is if Stan McCammon, representing the McCaw ownership group, hadn't shopped a deal that he had struck, um, uh, you know, here in uh, in, in Vancouver, uh, whereby uh, an outside uh, ownership group. Um, a very, you know, uh, well-respected um, uh, 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 ownership group, the Washington family, um, uh, Dennis Washington, his son, Kyle, 
um, they had a handshake deal on buying 40% of the Grizzlies, 40% of the Canucks, and 40% of the arena. And essentially, McCaw would have kept the other 60, 60%, but uh, the Washingtons would have options uh, to take majority control. And, and I honestly believe that if um, that deal was taken, the Grizzlies would still be there um, as a franchise, either my, majority owned by McCaw with strong minority ownership or majority owned by uh, Washington with uh, uh, McCaw minority ownership. Uh, that would have kept uh, every, everybody together, the Canucks, the arena staff and the basketball uh, team. And I think financially, uh, they could have weathered, uh, or at least, you know, weathered more, much more easily uh, the 65 cent dollar exchange rate at the time if they were all part of the family. But the moment that deal collapsed, uh, and it collapsed because Stan McCammon apparently tried to shop it and tried to get a better deal uh, for the Grizzlies uh, or, or, or for, you know, the, uh, all of the assets. Uh, when that deal collapsed, it then led to Bill Laurie, it then led to Michael Heisley, and we know, um, you know, what eventually happened after that. So uh, those are two moments that really uh, stand out to me as defining the, the future of the Grizzlies. And I also think that, you know, if, uh, uh, you know, a certain uh, number uh, uh, two uh, draft pick uh, had not, you know, trashed Vancouver and, and, you know, indicated that he, he was going to refuse to, uh, uh, to play, um, you know, that might've also made a difference because that made headlines for all of the wrong reasons. And when you draft a guy who has said he doesn't want to play, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, as what happened in this particular case proved, proved, um, you know, you're, you're probably asking for trouble. And I think not being able to convert that um, Steve Francis draft pick at number two uh, was another, um, you know, uh, let's say a damaging moment for, for the Grizzlies in Vancouver. So let's close out, Tom, by looking ahead to the future. We've already brought this up throughout our conversation here today that there's a lot of enthusiasm to bring basketball back here to Western Canada, to Vancouver, the appetite that there is in that market. And we've seen it when the Raptors come and have played exhibition games there. You can get the sense that there is just, there's a great excitement there. And I feel that it could succeed this time around. And I don't think anyone would be better positioned to speak to this than yourself. Obviously you have your finger on the pulse of sports business and you're right there in the Vancouver market. What would have to happen to make it work this time? Actually, I guess, first off, what would have to happen for a team to come to Vancouver? And then once that happens, for it to succeed? Well, you know what? The two questions are very related, Brian. I mean, first of all, uh, what would have to happen to, to bring a team? Uh, I really believe uh, that uh, it, would, it would come by uh, expansion more likely than by relocation. Um, you know, the end, some of those weak markets that people talked about uh, as being, hey, you know, uh, uh, maybe Sacramento becomes the, uh, the, the NBA 2.0 in Vancouver. Um, those franchises have been really strengthened by the incredible television deal that uh, uh, was struck with uh, ESPN, ABC, and TNT. You're talking nine 
uh, sorry, you're talking $12 billion, uh, sorry, $27 uh, billion over the course of a, a nine-year deal, almost $3 billion a year. That's massive, even for the franchises that weren't, you know, selling out their buildings. Um, the NBA has done a very good job at strengthening those weak franchises. So that's why I don't really see any of those uh, previously weak uh, franchises like the Sacramento Kings being an option to relocate um, uh, you know, to, to Vancouver. So I think it's going to come through expansion. And if it comes through expansion, uh, Vancouver is going to be in the lineup behind Seattle. Uh, you know, there's no way the NBA comes back to Vancouver before it comes back to Seattle. Um, you know, the late David Stern said, uh, uh, you know, the biggest uh, regret of his life was not having things work out in with Canada's second team in Vancouver. Um, and, you know, the Seattle Sonics situation was, was also, uh, I think, an embarrassment for him in the later years of his uh, commissionership. So I do think it has to be expansion, but it might not even be in the next round of expansion because you'd think that what they'd do is they'd uh, award a team to Seattle and then probably have another uh, uh, Eastern team uh, uh, come on board whether it's St. Louis or, or one of those other uh, markets, or maybe even it's a, it's, a, it's a Montreal that might get a kick at the can uh, before Vancouver gets it again. Having said it, I know that that sounds um, uh, pessimistic, but I do believe that the NBA will come back to Vancouver at some, at some stage, maybe not in the next couple of seasons, maybe not even in this next round of expansion. But I do think that as a, uh, Pacific Gateway City, uh, especially if Seattle is back in the mix, it would be a pretty solid corridor to have Vancouver, Seattle, the Portland Trailblazers, the Golden State Warriors, and then of course uh, the the Clippers and the Lakers. Uh, you know, in in Los Angeles, that would be a pretty solid corridor for the NBA. All of them Pacific Gateway uh, cities. Uh, in terms of what would be required to make it successful once they came back, well. First of all, a deep-pocketed ownership group that's prepared to spend at least a billion dollars for an expansion franchise. Keep in mind, NHL expansion teams are now at 650 mil. Um, you know, I think the low watermark for an NBA expansion franchise would be a billion dollars, maybe even a little bit north of that. And when you add on the American currency uh, uh, exchange, that's a lot. And, and my theory is that the only way it works is either common ownership with the NHL's Vancouver Canucks or uh, a strong partnership between the Aquilini family and a consortium of investors. And I've often thought that a uh, consortium of uh, Chinese Canadian investors, uh, maybe even with some first generation Chinese Canadians um, in, in, in the mix might have the wherewithal and the interest to bring the NBA back to Vancouver. I do think, again, it has to be done in partnership. You can't be a tenant. Uh, you certainly need to play at Rogers Arena. You don't want to uh, spend a billion dollars for the expansion franchise and then 800 million for uh, an arena. It's just beyond the scope of uh, uh, a lot of you know, smart, smart investors. But I do think that there is a pathway um, and I say so, Brian, because 
not only is, is Vancouver more international and, and a bigger market than it was 25 years ago uh, in a big way, uh, the NBA itself is bigger um, as a product, as a, as a fan product in the year 2020 going into 2021 um, uh, that, than, than, it, that, than it was back in the mid-1990s. Uh, and also it's much more international. And you've got now, you know, basically a couple of dozen Canadians playing NBA basketball. No other country outside of the United States produces more NBA players in Canada. And so the Canadian side of the international uh, question and the European side of the international question, both those things uh, I think would appeal in a, in, a, in a major way to fans in the Pacific Gateway city of Vancouver. Well, I sure hope you're right. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute blast talking to you. All the best, Brian. Take care. You can follow Tom Mannecht on Twitter at The Sport Market and can catch him every week hosting The Sport Market on TSN Radio Network. It's an absolutely fascinating show. And, of course, the business end of things in sports has probably never been more relevant than it is now as leagues and teams figure out how to navigate the raft of challenges brought on by the pandemic. And, of course, I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in. If you haven't already, be sure to check out our show archive at 90sbasketball.anchor.fm. And remember, you can catch the basketball show every Saturday on TSN 1260 Radio Edmonton from 11 to noon Mountain Time. And with that, I'm out. My name is Brian Swain, and this has been the 90s Basketball Show.